Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, we hear from near the front line in Ukraine. It was the most destroyed town I'd seen in, in the whole Ukraine war. The entire city centre, town centre, was smashed to pieces. President Putin accuses the West of nuclear blackmail. The Ukrainian ambassador has this message for him. You are not the only one on this planet. This responsibility is not yours. We all of us live in this planet. We, don't, we are not threatening your own nation. Nobody's getting over the border. Nobody's coming to kill you people. You actually came to kill Ukrainians. And we ask, what is President Putin going to do next? How much does he have in his arsenal by way of long-range missiles still? And, and is his tactic now going to be to go after civilian infrastructure in Ukraine? We're focusing on Ukraine this week. Five British nationals held by Russian-backed forces in eastern Ukraine have been released on the same day that President Putin announced a partial mobilisation of 300,000 military reservists. What message is Russia sending and how will Ukraine respond? We'll speak to the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK, but first we'll hear what's happening in one area of the fighting. Richard Spencer is a correspondent for The Times and has just returned from the region around Kharkiv in the northeast of Ukraine. What's happened in the last couple of weeks is that the Ukrainians uh, carried out this sort of fairly complex uh, manoeuvre to draw troops, you know, some of the best Russian troops who were in the east round this city called Kherson in the south to reinforce the front there. They they kind of fainted to uh, attack that area, which they did attack. It wasn't it wasn't entirely a feint, but then they found this weak spot in the Russian defences in the far east, southeast of this, the Kharkiv, the second city of Ukraine, and they just they hammered one particular point at a town called Balaklia. And and basically those Russian defences, which were very uh, weak in that area and defended not by crack Russian troops, but in in a lot of cases by these recruits from Luhansk and Donetsk, these two kind of captured regions where they've sort of recruited just guys off the streets really to form a militia. So they weren't particularly good troops and they they basically ran away, I think the only way to put it, uh, um, after a very short period of fighting. And then the Ukrainians poured through this gap and basically threatened to cut off so many Russian troops that they just withdrew. And this fairly substantial area of territory, virtually all of this oblast or region around Kharkiv, uh, fell back into the Ukrainian hands without too much of a fight. Uh, the Russians have now um, regrouped a bit and they're holding the line on the uh, on a river called the Oxil. And there's still quite heavy fighting there. And the Russians do seem to have held up the advance any further from the Ukrainians. But the Ukrainians are probably also, uh, you know, pausing to, to take stock. And you heard a story of the way the Ukrainians are using Western firepower against Russian positions in the town of Izium. Yes, um, uh, in and around that area. So Izium was the main target for this offensive. It's kind of in a fairly strategic position between the Donbass, this area that's been sort of fought over since 2014, uh, and Kharkiv. And it was a sort of it's it sits on a supply line on a on a road between those two areas. So that was the main target. Uh, it's a city of about fifty or sixty thousand people, and and basically everyone told us that these very much more accurate Western weapons, particularly these things called the HIMARS, which are, are longer range um, uh, artillery, which are nevertheless 
accurate enough as someone told me that, you know, they can put a shell through your window at, you know, 50 miles. They were using that to target Russian supply bases. So you saw a lot of explosions, very dramatic explosions in some cases, of Russian ammunition depots. And uh, in a town called this first town they hit, Balaclia, you know, we actually had some quite remarkable eyewitness accounts from residents of three warehouses they were using to supply arms being set off by the this uh, Ukrainian artillery in the three days before the uh, Ukrainians attacked. And in one case, you know, the explosions were going on for four hours. And evidence was found that there suggested that many died in the town of Izium. When the Russians invaded, that was one of their main targets. And the, the Ukrainians did try and defend that town in March. And so anyway, I, I, if any reporters have been there since March, it would only be on the Russian side. So going in there, you know, just after it was, you know, recaptured by the Ukrainians, for me, was quite striking. We hadn't seen any pictures. Um, I managed to sort of sneak around the Ukrainian checkpoints. We were trying to keep people out at that stage and get into the town. And um, it was very dramatic. The, it was the most destroyed town I'd seen in, in the whole Ukraine war. The entire city centre, town centre, was smashed to pieces. Every building was, um, you know, gutted or um, uh, burnt to the ground. The town hall, the school, the supermarkets were just shells. Uh, the the church had this beautiful big church, had a big beautiful golden dome which had been um, clearly hit by a missile and that was in March and uh, the the locals reckoned hundreds and hundreds of people had been killed in that um, initial Russian advance in the shelling and and obviously some had died since in the fighting and yes they found this I say they found the town cemetery had had this informal extension in the forest where at least 450 bodies had been buried. So very, very heavy uh, casualties there, almost entirely civilian. And how surprised uh, did the Ukrainians you spoke to seem about the scale of the Russian retreat in the area? Um, They were slightly surprised, but they also, a lot of them stressed that the troops had been, they could tell that the troops weren't very good in some cases. Again, in in Izium itself, people told us that they had talked to the um, to the, the troops, particularly these guys from Luhansk, so you, you know people from Ukraine, if you like, Russian-speaking militias from, from Luhansk, who said they didn't want to be there at all. Richard Spencer of The Times. Well, the Prime Minister Liz Truss says the mobilisation is a clear admission Russia's invasion of Ukraine is failing. But in his address to the Russian people, President Putin said Moscow would use all available means to protect its territory and had lots of weapons to reply. Our country also has various weapons of destruction. And with regard to certain components, they're even more modern than the NATO ones. And if there is a threat to the territorial integrity of our country and for protecting our people, we will certainly use all the means available to us. And I'm not bluffing. Well, Vadim Pristryko is the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK. And before that, he was his country's foreign minister. I spoke to him earlier and asked him how Ukraine will respond to Russia's planned mobilization of military reservists. I have to tell you that we were prepared. To some extent, we already have a million people under arms. And that's what we are ready to do. If we have to, we will increase, we will go for the, for the mirroring, to mirroring this, this effort. What I also get from here that he is afraid that he can lose this war. 
whatever he calls it, special military operation, this obviously a war between his nation and our nation and the rest of the international order, international community. We can't lose it. We're preparing to fight. We just hope that the partners, our allies, will be with us to help us in this fight. And President Putin has accused the West of engaging in nuclear blackmail, saying the prevailing winds can turn in their direction. That's quite a threat. And he said he wasn't bluffing. Your response to that? I believe that he is blackmailing us. Nobody was threatening him, neither with nuclear weapons nor conventional. And I have to remind you that we had the third biggest arsenal in the early 90s where we deci- when we decided to give it away. Physically, we gave it away to Russia in response to the promises of UK, US and Russia to defend us in anything, if anything happens to us. Now it happened. And how great is the risk that Putin will use tactical nuclear weapons? The risk is here. Nobody knows what in his head. And he's, you know, he's uh, obviously developing some, some strange, strange notion of him being in the center of, of a fortress and the siege. Instead of just not coming to somebody else, else lands, not killing these people, not threatening the, the rest of the world, he could live peacefully in his own nation. He, he chosen to, to go against the neighbors. He st- started with bullying smaller ones like Moldova, Georgia, and the rest of them. Now he came to the bigger, bigger nation, which is almost 50 million, and somebody on, on, on his level. He found, finally found his, his match. We will not allow him to, you know, to go because the next step, he will get bolder and bolder, will go further and further in Europe. I don't know what's, what's next. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, somebody else of the neighbors on the Western side, the NATO side. Met his match, you say. Russian-backed officials in four areas under Moscow's control have announced plans for a referenda on joining Russia. How will you react if there are majorities for leaving? You're just trying to tell, that's my land now. You can't attack me anymore because this is my land and by my doctrine, I will use everything in my possession and my capacity as the big, big nuclear nation to defend my land. Although it was mine, it became mine 10 minutes ago, nobody in the world recognized it, but I will defend it now. A lot of commentators in response to what President Putin has been saying this week about nuclear weapons or insinuating are saying this is a very dangerous moment. And they're even talking about potential of World War Three. What's your response to that? I believe the danger is here. We have to do everything we, we can to avoid this nuclear nuclear catastrophe. I, I guess that we have to to tell Putin straightforwardly that you're not doing this. You you bound by many rules by international law. And by the way, you are not the only one on this planet. This responsibility is not yours. We all of us live in this planet. We don't. We are not threatening your own nation. Nobody's getting over the border. Nobody's coming to kill you people. You actually came to kill Ukrainians. So we believe that this is still blackmail and we can avoid the catastrophe. Against all of this, there have been territorial wins for the Ukrainian forces after recent Russian retreats in the northeast of the country. What does a military win look like for Ukraine? This is a great question. What is win and what is the, the point where Ukraine decides that's enough is enough? We believe that we are not expecting anything and we don't want to require anything more than just freeing our own lands, something which is recognized internationally, something which is recognized by Russia as well. Our sovereign territories, which include the whole east of Ukraine, which they took over this last campaign or eight years ago, and then coming all the way to Crimea, which was taken in 2014. You were with Ukraine's first lady, Olena Zelenska, this week as she visited Westminster Hall for the lying in state of the Queen. It gives a sense of, of what the relationship with the UK means for Ukraine going forward. 
This is a very interesting topic. Uh, going around the, this, this great land, uh, I'm asking people, why UK? Why you are supporting so, so much Ukrainians? And you, most of the, of, the, of the responses I hear, people saying, you know, we just, we just have this acute feeling of, of injustice. We want to help the underdog. We understand that the whole UK is supporting us. And that's how the first lady and the prime minister who was with us were trying to pay this tribute, coming to, to see the last moment of the, of the great queen, the Elizabeth. And the Ukraine has already experienced the, the benefits of UK armed forces training the Ukrainian forces. Uh, you had the opportunity at the funeral also to see uh, the UK military in its ceremonial finest moment. Um, what is your assessment of the UK military? I was a military myself, so it was long, long, long time. But now the times are different and we, we, we find, found this that we actually have to you know, reshape Ukrainian military in some sort of example of yours and other NATO nations. We're trying to get there because we understand that this force is much more effective, well-maintained, supported, well-fed, if you, if you want to put it this way. We want to build the relationships with these particular military forces. And I was not only seeing them at the finest moments at the parades. I was in the testing grounds, in, 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 in the exercise grounds. I was on the ships. I've seen how they parade. I've seen how they train our people. The respect they have towards each other, the, the demand is high, but the, the equipment is also provided. Vadim Pristaiko, the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK, well, to discuss the choices facing both Ukraine and Russia and the tactics needed to achieve their aims. We have Ed Arnold, a former infantry and NATO officer, now a European Security Research Fellow at the defence think tank RUSI, and Bridget Kendall, the former BBC Russia editor, now at Cambridge University. Welcome to both of you. Ed, if I can start with you, do you think Ukraine is at a military turning point? Yes, I do. Um, and it's important just to reiterate what was said by the ambassador and what has been said by President Zelensky in terms of what winning looks like for Ukraine, which is a return to pre-2014 borders, so including Crimea. And that has also been reiterated by President Biden and Prime Minister Truss and others. Um, the difficulty at the moment for President Zelensky in Ukraine in terms of taking back territories. Militarily, they've done enough thus far to demonstrate to the West that they can take back territory if they have the right capabilities. But politically, in a humanitarian level, they won't want to have territory occupied by Russian forces any longer than necessary, and especially over the winter, because they've seen the atrocities that can be committed. And then also looking forward and very far into the future, because I think it's important to do so at the moment. We also need to look at the continuing defence and deterrence of Ukraine from further Russian aggression. And I think the West and NATO now would have realised that if they had done more on this in 2014, and between 2014 and 2022, then the Russian operation this year might not have actually uh, happened and there's not much point in this monumental effort to preserve Ukraine as a state and the Ukrainian people if there's not serious long-term support. And it's then worth noting that you know, when the the guns stop firing on this phase of the war, Ukraine will be one of the largest and best equipped and crucially the only major European nation with experience of fighting Russians, which no other NATO members have. So this is a very long-term commitment. Bridget Kendall, what do you think is going on within the Kremlin in terms of its strategy? President Putin's thinly veiled threat about nuclear weapons, for example. It's famously very difficult to read the Kremlin and it gets harder all the time because we 
don't have much information from inside except unconfirmed sources. And it does feel as though the Russian president has been living in a bubble. Otherwise, why would he have embarked on this frankly crazy adventure in the first place to invade Ukraine? So that makes it very difficult to predict what he'll do. I, I think his speech was very important. In some ways, it repeated what he said at the outset of the war. This isn't the first time that he's raised the Russian nuclear threat. He's repeating it. What I find a little reassuring is that although he's reminding the world and his own audience again that he has nuclear weapons in the end, there have been Ukrainian attacks into Crimea, which is already annexed by Russia and in its size Russian territory. And there have been attacks behind Russian lines uh, explosions that have happened in places like Belgorod on the Russian side of the border and there hasn't been any reaction from the Kremlin saying now you're attacking Russia we reserve the right to use our doctrine to uh, engage nuclear weapons so on the ground he's, he's not yet following up on the threats that he's making rhetorically so that suggests to me that this is still rhetoric it's to try and deter the West from giving Ukraine more long-range missiles that would be able to attack targets inside Russia. It's to reassure and remind Russians and the supporters of Russia in those areas of eastern Ukraine that they occupy and are now under threat from the Ukrainians, that Russia is strong and it still can withstand this counterattack and the Western backers. But it's dangerous because it's also laying out, reminding the Russian people that there is a nuclear threat in the background. And I think what he was doing in his speech was to say, we are now seeing the threat, the th a direct threat from NATO so he's laying the groundwork if at mm. a later point he, he feels he knows needs to go down that road. And Bridget, do you think it will reassure the Russians? Do you think there is any serious threat to the current leadership? I mean, we've seen protests and arrests overnight. Mm. Well, I was just thinking when you were asking, Ed, is, is this a, a turning point for Ukraine? I was thinking, you know, the other question to ask is, is this a turning point for Russia? Mm. And it's very interesting that there were these protests, these brave, mostly young people coming out. And also another way in which people have been voting with their feet, the flights out to places like Yerevan and, and um, Istanbul, where you can get on a plane without a visa, they've been absolutely jam-packed with people trying to leave, presumably men who want to avoid the call-up. So again, it comes to the question of how far the speech from President Putin is going to be matched by reality. Yeah. And Ed Arnold, how critical or not do you think that mobilisation of reservists that Putin announced could be on the ground? Uh, well, the first point to note is it'll take time. So 300,000 um, to integrate um, is going to be very difficult. And Russia just doesn't have the infrastructure to do that in terms of recruitment, training very quickly. And also we have to, uh, there's a serious question mark over the quality of the training, both in terms of general infantry tactics but also specialisms and what the real issue that um which was faced is because the phase one of the operation was so poor they from their prestige and sort of specialist regiments they had a disproportionate amount of casualties both killed in action and wounded in action but also critically uh, officers who are the sort of primary tactical um cohesive force within Russian units. So replacing those is going to be very, very difficult and it'll take time. So it won't operationally make a difference in 2022 and probably not until sort of midway through 2023, which will still be sort of going into what we expect to be a, a larger scale Ukrainian counteroffensive. And I think mm. it 
doesn't fix any of the systemic issues with the Russian military at the moment. So yes, they do need personnel and also the requisite vehicles, which they've also lost a lot of, and it will be very difficult to resupply. But it doesn't fix their command and control problems. It doesn't fix their logistics problems. It doesn't fix their airland integration issues. And critically, it doesn't do it doesn't do much for morale, which is started at a very low level and has basically got lower and lower and lower and lower. So it's it's something that is required, but it's going to take a long time to see it and see an effect. Yeah, you you say it's going to take a long time. What what balance has to be got right from their point of view in terms of command and control and supply of weapons? So for, I mean, again, from the Russian perspective, I mean, command and control is just it's barely functioned in both all phases of the operation uh, this far. And and this is the real issue that we're seeing in the East at the moment and why the Ukrainian counter, or partly why the Ukrainian counter-offences have been so effective, that the Russians are fighting with a composite force. So they have active duty forces, reservists, mercenary groups, fighters loyal to the Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov. They're now recruiting for military prisons. They have elements of foreign fighters, National Guard, other volunteers. It's very, very difficult to fight combined arms manoeuvre at this scale with such a composite force. Uh, And Bridget Kendall, what do you think President Putin will do next? I want two things. One is, and Ed might be able to help on this, one is he's, he's looking elsewhere for military equipment, so North Korea. What's he going to get? How good will the weaponry be? And, you know, how much might that plug some sort of a gap? And secondly, if, if, if you look at the way Putin behaves, this is a man who spent his youth being a judo player. And we've often seen him in a military context use the judo feint. So if things aren't going well, he disarms his opponent by suddenly moving it in a different way and coming at them from the side in a way they don't expect. So I wonder, is, how much does he have in his arsenal by way of long-range missiles still? And, and is his tactic now going to be to go after civilian infrastructure in Ukraine? We've seen a bit of it, attacking a dam to flood a, to flood a river, trying to attack uh, railway stations and, and other infrastructure areas. But he'll, I would have thought he'll try and go after electricity, water, to deprive Ukrainians through the winter of heat and water. Ed, do you want to come back on that briefly? Yes, I mean, I agree with Bridget in terms of targeting infrastructure. I know people are sort of speculating about the the next move, and obviously everyone's worried about the potential for, say, tactical nuclear weapons or chemical weapons to, to be deployed in Ukraine, but I don't see it like that. There's plenty of conventional weapons that they can use and to strike targets, as Bridget's identified, in terms of infrastructure, just to make this really, really difficult for the Ukrainians over the winter. So I think that is something that we're likely to see as the the purely military objectives become less of an option for Russia. Really interesting to talk to you, Ed Arnold and Bridget Kendall. Thank you so much for your time. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. Well, back now to what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. In the east of the country, many of the towns and villages have been under relentless Russian shelling for months. Remarkably, some civilians remain. Helping to extract them are volunteers from the Mozart Group, a collective of veterans from across the world, led by a former US Marine Colonel, Andrew Milburn. He's filmed some of their dangerous work, which is funded by donations. Simon Newton has been speaking to him. Oh. Oh. 
In the town of Solidar in eastern Ukraine, Mozart Group volunteers raced to evacuate a critically injured civilian. Sasha, who was in his 40s, had been sitting outside having dinner with his mother when a Russian shell landed. Sadly, he was already, you know, clearly uh, going to die. But then we all want to believe he isn't right. And so we, we raced him to the, to the uh, nearest field hospital. And you can see from the subsequent clip, you look out the windows, you can't, you can, you can't hear so much, but you can certainly see the artillery, you know, is, is still landing um, around us. But I think we were so single-minded to get this guy to help that it, it, it didn't really register. Um, sadly, we got there and, and um, they, again, the medics did a great job. They drained his chest and everything, but the real problem was head injury and he had already died. Andrew's a retired U.S. Marine colonel. He fought in the Iraq War and more recently led special operations missions against the Islamic State. He set up the Mozart Group, a counter to Russia's infamous Wagner Group, after Moscow's invasion, gathering together 30 other veterans, all volunteers, to come to Ukraine to train the military and rescue civilians. Any given day you can find solid ore by the big pole of smoke. Um, it is... You have to see it to be believe it, Simon. I think you've seen the photographs and the footage, but still it's not quite the same as being in that city. You know, you and I were brought up post-Second World War hearing stories of Coventry and Dresden and Cologne, and this is how I envision Dresden. You know, I mean, every single building in that town has been badly damaged. Uh, the, the remaining population lives in cellars. Near the front line, most of the towns and villages are abandoned. The constant Russian bombardment reducing many to rubble. We're in solid all. Um, as you can hear, his chest getting pounded. But even here, Andrew and his team oh, find time. people. Oh, thank God. Evacuation. Evacuation. Kronotosk. Evacuation. No. What? Dude, you must come with us. Come with us. While some civilians still refuse to leave, for most, this is salvation. The team working fast to avoid being spotted by Russian drones. The team race from village to village, extracting who they can. Okay. But this, undeniably, is dangerous work. As that danger level keeps ratcheting up, more reach a decision point that they want to leave. Sadly, I think a number of them uh, have, have, you know, the term shell shock uh, applies. They, they're they just not registering what is going on anymore because it has been happening so long. We we see people try and continue with their lives. A, a lady pruning her roses in the, in the yard, even when there's a you know, Russian artillery landing um, less than a block away. Um, a man trying to start a a leaf blower uh, amidst the debris of his apartment block, you know, for the tiny bit of grass that's that's out front. You see these things, but they, they make no sense. And then you realize that, uh, sadly, you know, the, these people are living in a, an alternate reality that blocks out all these horrible things. Um, the military commander in that um, relayed to us not to come in. Um, he says it's so bad right now, they, they can't get their wounded out. We have a process. It's not an infallible process. I'm not saying that it's it, it's armor-plated, but nor are we reckless. Everything is a calculated risk. They're on the risk side, much higher than any of us have encountered in Western militaries. Yeah, I mean, I, I went through the Battle of Fallujah. 
you know, which was the most, the bloodiest battle since Tway City. I, and, and certainly were, had moments of terror there, uh, but nothing quite like feeling the, the shriek of uh, artillery coming down on you and not knowing when it's going to land. And you don't get used to that. Actually, the more it happens, the more jumpy you get, I've noticed. Recent weeks, Ukrainian forces launched a lightning counteroffensive, liberating the key eastern city of Izium and thousands of square kilometers of occupied territory. But Andrew is cautious. These things are not binary, right? So I'm concerned when I see euphoric articles in the Western media. Oh, yeah, the Russians are on the run, blah, blah, blah. Going north to south. The Russians have lost a lot of people. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Deaths, number of deaths alone doesn't necessarily constitute a victory for the Ukrainians at all. If you look at the amount of um, land that the Ukrainians have taken, you know, I hate to say, but it's not that much, you know. Tens of kilometers at the most in places. Of course, I'm here. I want the 100% Ukrainians to win. And the reason why I'm saying this is that we have to be honest. Western weapon systems have helped extraordinarily. Yes, there's no doubt about it. But in the end, you need infantry to, to hold ground. And I'm concerned that the Ukrainians will run out of infantry. Not all the Mozart group's work involves rescuing humans. In Ukraine, even the most innocent are affected by this war. Oh. <laughs> For these veterans, this is something of a calling, a desire to do something, a mission they feel they must complete. Simon Newton reporting. And that's all for now. My thanks to all of our guests this week. You can listen to the programme again at bfbs.com slash sitrep or wherever you find your podcasts. We're back with another BFBS sitrep next Thursday. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 